was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am so honored to be joined by the luminous Christine Andreas. Christine Andreas, dubbed the Revival Queen, starred on Broadway in revivals of On Your Toes, Oklahoma, and My Fair Lady, the first two of which earned her Tony nominations. She also gave unforgettable performances in the original productions of The Scarlet Pimpernel, Angel Street, Words and Music, and the 2010 revival of La Cage au Fall. She also performed in the rehearsals of Legs Diamond, the out-of-town tryout of Rags, the revival of Stardust, and Alec Wilder Clues to a Life off-Broadway. She also starred in the fields of Ambrosia here in the United States and in London, and in the national tour of The Light in the Piazza. As if all this wasn't enough, she also maintains a much-lauded cabaret career, which has included performances at the White House, residencies at the Carlisle, and several albums like Lola, Here's to the Ladies, Love is Good, and most recently, Piaf, No Regrets. So without further ado, the lady herself, Christine Andreas. So I want to start by asking you how you first became interested in theater. How I did? Well... I come from a big family. I have six brothers and a sister and a good Irish Catholic Italian family. And my mom was a natural singer and she sang all day long uh, growing, as I was growing up. In fact, I, I'm sure she sang when I was in utero, you know, when I was just a little, you know, fetus inside of her. I'm sure she was singing. And, I, you know, you hear rhythms like that. I mean, I sang to my son when I was pregnant and when I would sing that song to him, it would soothe him, calm him down. Because, I mean, you have to hear all that, you know. So I think from the point of inception, I just heard this lovely alto voice so happily singing all the time, you know, all day long. The radio, or we had a little 45 record player on top of the refrigerator, which is the big hole, the small records with the big hole. She would be playing, you know, that or listening to the radio because she loved all the standards. She listened to Nat King Cole and Lena and Ella and Sinatra, Bennett, all the, you know, great singers. So I just grew up hearing it and her, but mostly her. And because I could feel her um, uh, openness and vulnerability and, and that just went into my heart. So I don't, you know, I don't even know when I started singing. I just started making a sound, and then they heard something special. And one, I went to a Catholic school, and one of the nuns, you know, said to her, you know, you better give that girl voice lessons, or you're going to go to hell. She was kidding. But, um, so I went and studied with a terrifying teacher, but the guy who played with her was brilliant. His name was Bob Tartaglia. Her name was Edna Wood, and this is in South Jersey. And he was so incredible. I never sang with a. Uh, you know, musician. I never sang to live accompaniment. I was singing to a record with somebody else singing, you know. So to have somebody playing underneath me, it just activated all this energy in my body. And I guess I always felt confident singing too because of my mom. I mean, there's certainly 
some things would make you nervous as a young kid, but I would sing in church, you know, midnight mass, a holy night and, and the sound, it would be the sound and the big, you know, the, the, the church is so, and a lot of artists talk about singing in church and how that inspired them to go forward. Aretha and a lot of recording artists all started in church. Natalie, they all started, a lot of black artists, of course, all started in church. So you hear those sounds coming back at you. And at first you're in love with your voice. I mean, you can be in love with your voice too, which is a problem for a lot of singers because you can't be in love with the sound. You have to be in love with what you're saying and expressing. But that's how it all started with mom. And then when I got out of high school, I just got right on the bus with uh, all the trade papers under one arm and how to audition under the other arm, which was a book in those days. And I got off the bus at Port Authority in the 1969, I guess it was, when the Sydney was really pretty dangerous. And I just walked across the street, I put a dime in the phone and I called the African Room, which was a showcase. And I went with my high school leading man and as I'm putting the dime in the phone to, you know, connect, I see, he, without a word, he just turned on his heel and he went back on the bus. He just couldn't do it. It scared him. Well, it scared me too. I mean, I had never done anything like this, but I just had that, it's what I'm supposed to do. You know, so it was in me to just go do it. So even if you're scared, just still do it because you would hate yourself if you didn't, right? And I didn't want to live with that. I mean, he had to live with that and maybe that was okay. Maybe he didn't have that level of passion, but I did. And so that one audition just led to one thing led to another, to another, to another. You know, I got some summer stock. I moved into the city. I lived with a couple of girls and eventually I got a show and fell in love with somebody. We got married and then he and I did stuff together and, uh, you know. And then I started getting jobs in New York City. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's a big story. So from the very beginning, did acting sort of go hand in hand with singing, or was it only singing or mostly singing? Well, it was theater. I mean, what I fell in love with was not becoming a recording artist. I didn't even think about it. It was, you know, I, I just listened to on the little 45 on the fridge, I listened to The King and I and The Sound of Music and My Fair Lady and South Pacific and, you know, uh, Camelot. And I would go away. I mean, it was just, it was these vivid worlds, all these shows. And then I would end up going to the library and getting out the books that these plays were based on, like Carousel's based on Lilium and Oklahoma's based on Green Grow the Lilacs and Fair Lady is Pygmalion and, and King and I is a book and then The King of Siam. Because I just want I just, I, it was insatiable my need to drink in these shows in these worlds and understand the characters and understand on a deeper level what the show was about, you know? Um, so that, that involved being able to act, which I wasn't as gifted at in the beginning because I was very shy oh. and quite self-conscious. Singing, not so self-conscious because it just filled up my whole being, every cell of my body. But acting, I would be watching myself and be not secure about. Um, so that took a while to yeah. feel more comfortable with. And even now, you know, every role you get, you have to either coach. I mean, some roles you put them on like a coach. You, just feel, you put your arms in there and wrap it around you and the role tells you what to do. And some roles, they're just not as familiar or comfy and you need to do a lot of work to get comfortable because the worst thing is being self-conscious. That's the enemy of all performance. You, all audiences are like an animal in, in a good way. They sit there and they watch and they can just sense that person's not comfortable. You can see they're not 
totally connected. The conversation that I'm trying to have isn't pure with the audience because every performance is kind of like this, like a conversation, you know, but I'm Eliza or I'm Lori or, you know, so it's ongoing. It never stops the learning, right? It never stops. Yeah. Yeah. So were there any singers or actresses growing up who inspired you or you thought I want to be like that or? Well, I'll tell you that the, yes, of course. I mean, they were they they were the ones that connected with lyric so purely, and that lyric motivated their sound. You know, they didn't go, "I'm going to sound soft here or loud." I mean, they might have realized that phrase; they should take it down, but they weren't thinking that. They were thinking, you know, my romance doesn't have to have a moon in the sky. You know, they, they were thinking about the moon and they're thinking about their romance. They're not thinking, I'm going to do this with my hands. And, you know, the, the song just worked them over. So, all, oh, of course, the greats that you know of, they all inspired me, particularly Sinatra, because I couldn't figure out what I loved was I never knew where he was going. Yeah. And that's true of Ella and that's true of, of uh, you know, many, many, many singers. But that's the special thing. Like, when I know where you're going next, then you know where you're going next because you're watching yourself. I like those singers that just, I never knew. And then when it came to acting and actresses, as a young actor, uh, you know, you read all the books or read excerpts of Stanislavski, who had great ideas, which I still carry with me today when I do um, master classes. And his idea was relaxation will create concentration will create imagination. So that means, and you can think about the way, like when you're lying in the bath or taking a shower, suddenly all these ideas come to your head, right? You get so creative because you're doing this relaxing thing. And then because you're relaxing, whatever's in your head starts to come up that you've been thinking about. You start to concentrate on something you're working on, or, and then you get real imaginative because you're so focused. So those three tenets always struck me. And I developed systems for myself to get more relaxed and and more uh, concentrated and more creative. Because a lot of actors are very ADD, you know, very, you know, attention deficit disorder. That's just how we are, which is what makes us incredibly creative. But we have to learn to harness our attention. And it's usually, it's always through relaxation. And finally, um, with all that in mind, when I was a young actor, I found a book called A Mystic in the Theater. It was written by a famous, famous older actress called Eva Legallian. Did you ever hear that name before? Yes, yes, I yeah. So Eva Legallian, and she went to the theater as a young actress, and she saw Bernhardt work, Sarah Bernhardt, the famous French actress, and she saw Eleonora Duza. That, that may be a name you don't, you know that name too? Yeah. Eleonora Duza? My God, boy. So anyway, she, she, do you know this book, A Mystic in the Theater? No, I don't know the book. But... Well, you got to find that. I think you'd really be interested in that because what Legallian noticed was Bernhardt was absolutely brilliant, but she was presentational. You know, it was thought out. It was structured. Some people, you know, accused Olivier of that a lot, you know, that it was, it was all in his head and often not enough in his heart. Who cares? He was so brilliant. And I don't care because he was so brilliant. You watch him anyway. But your whole body reacts to an actor like Duza was. Duza was very religious and very Italian. 
And she would say that she would go in performance into a state of grace, which means she was just a vessel, just an open pipe for inspiration. She got hooked up with Ibsen, which at the time that she was an actress, everybody was doing these really big, giant, you know, like they were the books for operas. They were just really huge with big feelings and everybody had felt real big. Well, Ibsen was a quiet, tiny little voice, right? I mean, he's really little, tiny. It's like, you can't just get all over the place like this with him. Your hands really have to be, you have to be totally relaxed. And they talk about in the book, uh, Legallian, just one more moment about it. She says, there was a moment in Ibsen and it was during uh, the dollhouse. And I can't remember the, what the moment exactly was, but she is shamed. She's going through something and she's feeling shame for what she's done. And Duza just sat in a chair on this stage. Now imagine theater is very different than and very small. And she just allowed a blush to rise from, you know, through her whole body and suffuse her face and turn red. She allowed all the time that to look for that. Can you imagine that in a theater being that embedded in the moment, so suffused by the moment that you allowed yourself to live the shame and you allowed a blush to rise through you? I mean, that just knocked me, floored me. And I thought, that's the kind of actor I, I want to be. Um, I felt I could do it often in song because I trusted what the song did to me, but I couldn't always trust what a role or the writing or a play might do to me. But that's what I, that's what I aspire to. And I think all really serious performers, whether they explain it that way or not, they want to be what they say in the moment. That's what you want. And how we get there, well, that's everybody's magic, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it makes everything you sing never the same. Like you like you do you're doing eight shows a week, right? The same words, the same music, but never the same audience. Never the same, you know, energy that day. As well as all the actors you're working with never have the same energy. So if you pay really good attention, you're listening the musicians, you know, they're different that day. The conductor is different that day. So there's all these elements that are brand new. And I think the secret to doing eight shows a week First of all, you have to love the music and the show that you're doing, and you have to have a rapport with your actors, hopefully. Um, and then you're just in that moment with them, which is always different, every moment completely different, every day, every performance. So there you go. That's that's how you do it. Yeah. And not get bored. And that means you have to, and that's the secret to being able to do that, which I learned early on, is energy. So if you're tired for a performance, it's very hard to stay attentive. It's just simple, right? It's for anything. When you get tired, it's just like, oh, man, I love this show, but why do I have to do this matinee? So you make it, you become a disciple of that show. You become like, you know, the priestess or the priest of, you know, that particular show you're doing because it's your job as an actor to always make sure you have the appropriate amount of energy for every performance. And something about the show tells you just how much energy you need. Some shows require more than others. Yeah. I'm giving you all my secrets, Charles. Oh, oh I love hearing you. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so once, once you got to New York, did auditioning come easily to you? Did you start to get a lot of jobs right away? Yeah, it wasn't hard in those days. I, mean, I don't know how anybody does it now. Because in those days, and, and then the early 70s, I'm talking, you get your papers, you read the papers. I remember one of the biggest things that happened was there was an open, what they call an open call, which means everybody can go for an agent. 
you know, because that's the, the catch 22 is you don't get the good jobs unless, you, well, I got an equity, first of all, the number one is you have to get an equity card, right? And I got an equity card doing summer stock when I was still in high school. Oh. Now they cost a fortune and, you know, a lot of really fine performers have to go through major hoops to get an equity card. But, you know, you want to be able to do equity shows. Um, so that was easy. Got the equity card while I was in high school. Uh, then the next step is, you know, getting an agent. And the problem is normally you have to be performing at a really good showcase or show for an agent to come see you. And you can't be doing that unless you have the card or unless you have an agent to get you into a show. <laughs> so it's really kind of complicated. Um, now, when I was just beginning, they had these what they called open calls. And you could go and sing for an agent. And if, you know, and there'd be 300 people at these open calls. But I did that and nailed an agent because I was born gifted. I mean, this voice is a gift. It was there when I woke up. And I tried to take good care of it. So when he heard it and he saw my confidence in performing, I mean, I was raw. I needed, you know, honing and, and discipline. But he saw that there was great stuff to work with. So boom, I got signed almost right away. And, you know, even prior to that, there was lots of summer stock and small showcases and things I could do. They were all in the paper, you know, all things because I had my equity card. So... I was slowly crafting myself. What I wasn't doing was studying. I just, I just wanted to do. I mean, I didn't go to college. I just went right into New York from high school. Um, but it all just seemed to go bing, 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 bing like that. It was very, very invigorating. Yeah, yeah. So I do want to ask what it was like to audition for your first Broadway show, which was Words and Music. Yeah. I don't think I even remember how I auditioned for that. I knew you were going to jar my brain. I don't remember. I guess the agent, I don't even know if, I didn't even have that agent, I don't think, when that happened. I don't remember. But it all was. Now, this was the, <laughs> Words of Music had three singers, a guy and two girls. It was Sammy Kahn, the wonderful lyricist, and he was one, and, and fantastic showman. I learned so much. I was the standby for the two girls. Kelly Garrett sang really low and Shirley Lemon sang really high. And it was very, the hardest role to cast in this show was me because you had to find a girl with that kind of range, right? Yeah. And I remember standing in the wings and just watching them and mostly watching Sammy because he knocked me out. Um, and the very f I left that show to do uh, Angel Street. And I remember that the last couple performances of that show, Shirley Lemon was a sweetheart. Maybe it was the final one. She let me go on so I could, you know, invite friends and family in. And, you know, theater folk are, are like that. They're kind that way. And yeah. I got a chance to go on for the first time on a Broadway stage and feel what it felt like. And I, I don't remember being scared. I mean, I'm sure I was a bit apprehensive, but I had learned all the music and I knew what to do and I knew what points to hit. So I learned a lot doing that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I would love to ask you about working with Sammy Kahn and the director, Jerry Adler. Yeah, now see, that's interesting. This is networking and this, this kind of synchronicity because I'm a little bit of a metaphysician, okay? I believe in kind of things. Jerry Adler directed that. I just remember being, I mean, I remember wishing I was singing, you know. I remember wishing I was one of the singers. Um, but... You know, I was really young, and these people were more seasoned. And 
anyway, so uh, I just remember watching, learning, absorbing, not having any resistance, really. I mean, yeah, I was a little bit envious, but you can't let that get in your way. You know, there's things to learn from everybody. Watching audiences react. I mean, I would sit in the house a lot and watch the previews and see how it all came together. And mostly just watching the enthusiasm of Sammy taught me a lot. Because the singers were actually kind of a little studied now when I think about it in retrospect. But Sammy was spontaneous because he just loved it. He was a real, he was a show off. He was a showman, but he was charming and he was really kind. Uh, and Jerry, you know, he did a masterful job. This is one of the first kinds of shows where they took a writer's work and made a show out of it. You know, they've, they've done a lot of them since then. But this was kind of the first, you know, Sammy Kahn, you know, was the one being on. They've done Billy Joel now and Carol King now. And, you know, they do different groups now, you know, the Temps and, you know, all the shows, Four Seasons. But this is one of kind of the first shows that just took a, a writer and and put their work before an audience in a very entertaining way. And what was curious about that show and how it served me was, you know, and as you get to it, Jerry ended up directing My Fair Lady. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Because then he knew me already. You know, we knew each other. And he, and because that's a part of the business too, is when a director knows an artist and knows their uh, reliability and gift, they're willing to take chances on them. Yeah. I was going to ask, was he the one who cast you in My Fair Lady because of... Well, he was part of the team, but there was two elements in My Fair Lady also. Um, when I did, I went on from Words of Music to doing the play Angel Street which was a play, which shocked me that they hired me. Like, why are they, I, I didn't have much experience acting, but I really always had a facility with languages because I have a good ear. So I could talk the company thing, you know, really easy. It wasn't a problem for me. And she was a Cockney maid. It was an Ange Angela Lansbury originated the role in the film. And in this particular play, another wonderful thing happened to me. And I met Dina Merrill, who became a lifelong friend and mentor. She was the lead in it. And Michael Allenson, who was her co-star, had been Rex Harrison's understudy in the original My Fair Lady. So Michael, when he heard that I was up for Fair Lady, we were on the road with Angel Street coming into New York. And he just said, well, darling, let me just coach you. Let me just, I, I know exactly what you have to do. So he coached me. But of course, now this is weird. When I went in to do the auditions, they all knew Michael was on the road with me. So they didn't give me those scenes. Now, I don't understand that. If I was coached and I coached well and I was good, why not see how good I had become? But they gave me different scenes for the audition, which was fine. Um, the other thing about My Fair Lady, which was very synchronistic and a little woo, woo was that as a child, when I read Pygmalion, I just heart connection. It was like it was like a bolt of lightning kind of it was bigger than it was like huge. It was a huge reaction to Pygmalion and to the score, mostly to the play. And it made me feel that I was destined to be connected with that show somehow. So when I auditioned for this, I had another kind of confidence going on because I just felt, and it was an ego, it was a deep knowing, it was a real intuition that I was destined to play it. I didn't know 300 girls had auditioned, actually it was 700 girls had auditioned for the role, both in London and in New York. And it didn't phase me at all. I didn't think about it. I didn't think, I'm not consciously real competitive, although I feel I'm probably very competitive, but it's not that conscious. I just knew it was mine. I knew, and I just waited for them to figure it out. How crazy is that? <laughs> it really hasn't happened since.
Wow, yeah, that's an interesting, interesting thing. So I would love to ask you about uh, Dina Merrill, who is someone you worked with on Angel Street and on On Your Toes later. So I would love to know about what you sort of learned from her and what it was like working with her. Well, there's so many things, but I guess the most important thing was she had extraordinary grace as a human being. I mean, she was, she, she's American royalty. Her father was E.F. Hutton, who was a big financier. Her mother was Marjorie Murrayweather Post, the post-serial heiress. So, I mean, Dina was very wealthy and had been raised in a very entitled way, in ways you can't even imagine. But that's even more striking because she had an extraordinary humility, curiosity, um, as I said, grace. I mean, she, she wasn't egoic, you know, is the best way to say it. She was very genuine and very loved for it. I mean, she was beautiful inside and outside. She was gorgeous, as most people who know her would remember. And she had lost her mother and her son tragically in a plane. Her mother had died first of old age and, you know, and then soon after, and she was very tight with the mother, very close, very connected. And then her son, David, passed away tragically in a, in a, in a boating accident at 23 or something. He was really young. And so when I met her, that had happened maybe very shortly before we met. And so I just think that my little gypsy heart or something just really attracted her. And she sought the friendship. She sought out a friendship with me. And I had never had that experience of somebody so, you know, of such standing, you know, being, you know. And so it was like mother-daughter. I mean, it was like, you know, she, she, like, she was my fairy stage mother. Yeah. And so when we ended up doing, and what, what happened ultimately down the road was, so we did Angel Street together and the show ended and we ended up staying great, great, great friends. And I observed her through all of that, being so kind to the company, so pro, you know, the experience of promoting the show. No diva, no star stuff. Just, you know, she would actually go to the tickets booth herself on matinees and stand there giving out tickets and, you know, whatever. She was a team player. So that that touched me. I saw how, I saw how things should work, you know, because it's not easy doing Broadway. It's not easy getting a show to fly. It's none of it is easy. Um, and the responsibility of being a star is a big responsibility. And everybody takes, you know, cues from how the star is behaving. And if they're a butthead, you know, people feel entitled to be a butthead, you know, and, and that creates rifts and jealousies and, you know, problems for the whole thing. It's not fun. Angel Street was fun. It had its issues and problems that didn't last really long, but it was fun. You know, it should be fun. It's hard work, but it should be fun. I have always felt that to be a big quotient in any of the things I choose to do is that it should be fun. I was offered Camelot when I was doing My Fair Lady, and I, I said no. I didn't think it would be fun because I saw that all the money was going into paying Richard Burton, and none of the money was going into the production. There was a huge imbalance. And when I went to see it later, I saw that that was the case. You know, it wasn't fun. It didn't look like fun to me. Yeah. You know, you had this, he was a brilliant actor, but he was very elderly when he did it. You were worried he was going to get through it. And the, the whole production looked cheap, you know. Yeah. So I had some good instincts about some things. Yeah. Um, the other thing about Dina, just the last thing was that she loved to sing and nobody knew this. 
she was like a closet singer and it wasn't a great voice, but you know, it was charming and she held her pitch and, you know, certain roles would be good for her. So I was offered On Your Toes. And when I was first offered it, I passed on it. Oh. And I, I said no to George Abbott, the director, because I felt I was getting a little too old to play ingenues. I was 28. You know, I wasn't that old, but I wanted to move on to leading lady parts, you know. So I said no to George Abbott, but I told Dina about it. I said, there's a great role in the show for you, man. There's a great role. It's perfect. And it was of a benefactress, you know, and, you know, at, who supported a ballet company. And she had these charming Rodgers and Hart songs to sing. And so she got the part. And then what happened was they're in D.C. in previews, and they were not happy with the girl. Um, so I got a call from Dina, a little sneak, and she said she wanted me to come down to D.C. to see if she was okay in the role. No, 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 no. She wanted me to go down there because they wanted to replace the girl, and she was going to seduce me into doing the part. And as soon as I got there, it was like classic, you know, backstage drama, like, they were finding, they, they took me, first they told me, like, they told me what was going on. I said, and Dina said, come on, Chris. And I said, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. When something comes around twice, I think there's a reason. And I loved her. And it was a wonderful piece. And they really wanted me. So it was all very alluring. And I was seduced. And you go down and you work out keys, you know, backstage, quietly with a conductor. And they're trying on all the costumes to see if they fit. And anyway, I ended up going and did the show. And I, and I did it for a year. And I had the best time. It was wonderful to do. So there's, yeah. that. there's that. I also said no to Oklahoma. Billy Hammerstein offered me the role right after I finished singing at the audition. And I had already done the show on the road in a, in a summer stock production, which was beautiful. And I felt I had, you know, found Lori and I wanted to do another show. I wanted to do Most Happy Fella that was being considered at the time for Broadway. And I said no to Billy. He looked at me like I was insane. And I was insane. I mean, and then I finally turned myself around. The agent hit me in the head with a brick and said, you know, you really should do. Yeah, okay. And and I did that for not only one. I did that for two years. I did it on the road as well afterwards. And that was a beautiful show to do. So those are all those connections. Yeah. So if I can uh, go back for a second to Angel Street, I would love to ask what you thought the problems with the show were that you were mentioning. Oh, it just maybe needed a little... Shepard Traub directed the original director, and he was lovely, but it needed to be better directed. We needed more time, more than anything. There wasn't a lot. I mean, maybe there was a couple of weeks rehearsal, and then, you know, a little bit of preview, and then we opened, and we just weren't quite ready yet. We needed a little more time to uh, make it mesh. And and maybe it wasn't the right time for the show, you know? I don't know. I'm not really sure. Um, I mean, My Fair Lady, we had three weeks rehearsal. Three weeks out of town, and then we opened. There was no time at all. We all we all were freaked out because Jerry Adler, God bless him, you know. I mean, this was Shaw. Shaw is complicated. Jerry had been, you know, what it was. I'm not even sure if Jerry directed words and music. He did because what it was. Jerry was the original stage manager. Okay, I should know that. Yeah, I just yeah, probably it was. He also was the original stage manager of My Fair Lady. Oh. And so Jerry was trying to recreate all the pictures and, you know, but when it came to Shaw, we needed Moss Hart and we didn't have Moss Hart. I mean, Julie Andrews was locked in a room with him for a weekend, famously locked into it. And he gave her every reading. That's a famous story. I'm not sure if it was a weekend. I'm not sure if he gave her every reading, but she was, and she was pretty seasoned by then. She'd done a lot of theater. She came from theater background. So here is this little girl from South Jersey, me, with no training, 
trying to do Shaw and nobody to help me. I didn't know how to get help in those days. You coach, right? I didn't know that. Even Ian, my, Ian Richardson, my co-star, was a Shavian scholar. He was flailing a bit. We all needed balancing. So it, it was not easy if you didn't understand about coaching in those days because you really didn't have a lot of time. And, you know, if you didn't have, a, if you didn't have adequate direction and you, you know, didn't know about coaching, you were just, you were left to find it in performance, which I eventually feel I did, but it took a couple of months. I could sing the score like, like gravy, you know, but Shaw, I mean, the original actress, Mrs. Patrick Campbell was 50 years old when she did that part. It took that kind of seasoning, you know, I actually just watched Audrey Hepburn last, for a little bit yesterday, it was on the movie. And even Audrey, you know, she wasn't quite the right casting for that part. And, and a lot of people's opinion, she's gorgeous. I love Audrey Hepburn, but you know, Eliza's gutter snipe, you know, she's feral in the beginning. You know, that's that's quite a distance for somebody with such gentility as Audrey. That was always the thing with Liza. Either, you know, you have to be a gutter snipe and you have to be, you know, regal. That's the transformation. Uh, I did it again on the road many years later in the early 90s. And I think I found my way to that. But it, I think I found it too the, by the middle of that run of Fair Lady too. I always... Yeah, yeah. Oh, it says my internet connection is unstable. I hope we continue this it's because of the weather yeah. okay so back to you charles <laughs> i want yeah. to ask so i want to ask you a bit about what it was like to work with ian richardson who of course was your higgins an english actor oh he was gorgeous he was wonderful he was so supportive like i said we were all struggling but nobody threw tantrums nobody like took it out on anybody else you know yeah. everybody was highly highly professional and I can, this is a lovely story. I can remember one day in previews, I finally got infamous slipper speeches at the top of the second act. And it's pure Shaw. I mean, Rex Harrison like took out huge tracks of Shaw in the original and got them put into the script, you know? So there's this whole big piece of Shaw and it was real hard. And I nailed it at this one performance. I don't know what I did. And I don't know how this happened, but I got off the, when I made my exit and Ian had exited before me, there was a red carpet. He found a bolt of red material somewhere. And there was this bolt, this red carpet laid out from where I exited the stage to my dressing room. Now, oh. is that just sensational? I mean, how chivalrous, how incredible. That's the kind of guy he was. So they made me feel, and I was a newbie, right? And I really had a lot to learn. They made me feel, uh, and Bob Coote as well, and Brenda Forbes and Jerry Lanning, they were all seasoned. They made me feel like I deserve to be on the stage. Yeah. That's a big thing to feel. Yeah, that is wonderful. So uh, revivals were sort of coming to dominance around this time. And of course, you starred in a lot of them. So I want to ask why you think it was that this revival movement sort of happened or came that to be. Movement. Yeah, dubbed the queen of revivals, right? <laughs> Because you hadn't seen those shows in 20 years or 25 years or more. So, and also, I guess, you know, rock and roll was coming in and, and that was confusing people. It was confusing composers, maybe, as to how to integrate all that. So maybe that's why, because we needed to fill theaters as well. You know, I mean, producers must have been going, like, we don't have enough content. What are we going to do? So it occurred to them that they could do this. You know, Andrew Lloyd Webber was just beginning because he was the one who solved how to, for a lot of people, 
I'll reserve my judgment there, but because uh, most people think he's you know the best thing that ever happened, um, and so he did. He 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 helped move it all along, but I you know I I still to this day miss melodic lines a lot in shows because those craftsmen were extraordinary. I mean, you could hear those scores over and over again with different artists reinterpreting them under good direction and you know good productions. You could watch them again and again because they deserved it. Now it's like crazy. I mean, every five minutes there is a revival of My Fair Lady, and it's I think it's our Oklahoma. It's a little much to me, but again, it's because we need content, and it's a tried and true, which is also boring. I mean, where's the creativity? You know, of new stuff. You know, but that's another discussion. So, what do you think that it is about your performing style that fits so well with revivals? Uh, well, I honored, I respected the genre, you know, I, I have a sort of a classic way about me because these are classics, you know, the voice carried itself, the look carried me. I was always a little bit uh, round, but people didn't seem to mind that, you know, I was never a skinny stick in any of these parts. Well, a couple times I was, but, um, but I had sort of a classic face and style. I guess I absorbed it from watching the movies and I didn't resist, you know, um, that classic approach. So I fit into all these shows. Uh, and I guess the most accessible for me was Oklahoma. Oklahoma just, I just understood that character and she's a complicated character. She's afraid of sex, basically, Laurie in Oklahoma. And she's afraid of, you know, falling in love and surrendering. She's afraid of surrender. She's very strong-willed. And, um, you know, you had to read the play to sort of get that. And I, I'm feisty. You know, you have six feisty. So I had no problem just letting that part of me, you know, rip in this piece, as well as being very lyrical and lovely when I needed to be. And that combination, which uh, if I had allowed it more in Fair Lady, would have been, if I was a little more mature then in the beginning, it would have ser you know, served me as well. But um, that helped me in Oklahoma. So I think I was just kind of born to, to do those shows. And I loved the grace of them. They were graceful, and I loved that. Yeah, yeah. And how did you sort of find your own stamp to put on each of these roles? It was just research. I didn't think about it much. You know, I didn't think like, I love Julie Andrews. You know, I love Shirley uh, Jones in the film, and I never got to see the other performances. But, you know, I... I loved them, so I didn't resist them. I, I let whatever they did wash over me, but I'm so different. So it was never going to be me being, I would never be Julie Andrews. I would never be Shirley Jones, you know. I I allowed that, and then I read the original Leno script, like I said, and let that wash over me. And so it was just trying to find the truth of the character, you know, and asking questions as I got more mature and coaching here and there to get to the truth and to try to drop my self-consciousness. And that's how the characters came through. It wasn't like this is going to be Christina Andreas's way. You know, I wasn't thinking like that. I was just trying to find my truth. And that's what every, every decent actor does. They're not trying to be the original. And some actors don't even let themselves see the original performances. I always liked that. Because the, if, if the performer did it well, the beauty of it would come through. It was their beauty, not mine. But that inspired me. Yeah. And what was the experience like of becoming a Broadway star at such a young age? <laughs> let me let me mull that one over, huh? Mm. I wasn't emotionally ready for it. 
I was very insecure. And I didn't, you know what, the bottom line is, and, and I understand this now, I was very, very, very intuitive. And I always heard this little voice telling me which way to go and what to do. You know, go right, Christine, go right. But then I would get willful and I'd go left. And whenever I did that, it'd be a setback, right? Mm -hmm. So in those early days, I listened a lot. But when I didn't, I would put myself into a state of pretty high insecurity and not always enjoy these incredible experiences that were coming to me. I mean, I remember getting on, I've never told anybody this, but I remember getting on the 104 bus to go to the theater for My Fair Lady and dreading it because I knew I wasn't delivering Eliza yet and I didn't know how to find her. And it was humiliating to me that I wasn't delivering the truth of Shaw, you know, and it really depressed me. So until I started to find it, you know, and I, I'm not unique in this. I'm sure many other actors would say the same thing. You know, you don't, it wasn't a coat that I put on and there was Eliza, you know, it was more complicated. So some of those early years, you know, it would be different for every show. Of course, Oklahoma, I never felt that. I was comfortable right away. But still, my insecurities were about other things. I just wasn't, I'm a late bloomer. Let's put it that way. I'm a late bloomer. Things occur to me later. But my intuition, and I'm a good person, I'm a good human being, and I, I never doubted that. So that kind of helped me stay buoyant when I was troubled. And I also ended up, you know, being in relationships that didn't support me as I needed to be, but I didn't understand that. And I was loyal to these people for 20 years. I had two tenure um, relationships. And I should have left early in them, but I didn't know that then, you know? And so part of getting to be my age now and, and stay buoyant is to look back at that and go, well, that's, that's, would you do it any differently? Well, yeah, I would now. But I'm, that's not who I was then. So you have to have some forgiveness, you know, for yourself. Like, that's what I understood how to do. I could have had a lot more fun in those days. I could have met a lot more people. All kinds of fascinating people wanted to connect with me. And I didn't allow a lot of it. Because I guess I just didn't feel worthy of it, you know, on a deep level. So my journey as a performer and as a person, they're not different. They're the same journey, was to be more self acceptant and more forgiving of self and I think I've learned that a lot so I'm grateful for that and so my wishing it could have been more fun is maybe next time around you know maybe there's going to be a next time and I won't forget what I've learned this time and I so I want to ask you about your next musical that you did which was Oklahoma so what was it like to be working with Agnes DeMille who had choreographed the original <gasps> Well, I didn't get to work with her much because I didn't have any dancing to do. I was so envious oh. of the dancers who spent, they, they were like a little club, you know, they were, they were, they, I mean, how could you not worship Agnes? She just had a stroke. She's in a wheelchair. Uh, you know, she's directing with, you know, whatever she had and she was a force. Right. And the only relationship I remember, only real encounter I remember, and, and it was a compliment. I said, Mr. Mill, I said, you know, when I exited at the end of many a new day, I didn't really know how to get off the stage gracefully. I said, could you, could you just help me with that? And she eyed me up and down and she'd been watching me and she said, you'll figure it out. 
And that was the most direction I got from Angus DeMille. And I took it as a compliment then. I mean, okay, yeah, I guess I was, you know, it wasn't a biggie, you know. It's just I wanted to look nice because the girls were going to come out and do their dance. And I wanted to look nice, you know, because <laughs> I'm not a dancer. I wouldn't go to dance class because I didn't know how to dance. That's a little bit of ego there, you know, and I would have loved learning to dance. But and in the next lifetime, I've learned that too. I'm just because you have to look klutzy, and you know, and when you first start dancing, you look kind of klutzy, right? Yeah. And I just my ego, I was so insecure, I didn't want to look klutzy, so I wouldn't go. Duh, duh, big duh. I would have been a really nice dancer. Like I could go now, I suppose, but the dancing girls for me are few and far between right now. <laughs> So you've done a lot of revivals with members of the original creative teams. And do you think that having faithful revivals is a good thing or a bad thing? Or I don't think good and bad really apply. I mean, if something like Shakespeare is always being reinterpreted, right? You know, I mean, it was a blessing working with original cast members. It was amazing. You know, I mean, it gave a gravitas. You know, I, Herman Levin, the original producer of My Fair Lady, produced ours. I mean, he was such a graceful guy. I keep using that word, but that's a good description. And I met a whole, I allowed into my life a bunch of people who just came from that time, you know. Nancy Hamilton did all these, uh, I'll answer your question in a second, but Nancy Hamilton, did all the, Nancy Hamilton was a lyricist. She wrote How High the Moon, and she let me into her life. And her life was filled, she was lovers with Catherine Cornell, famous, famous actress in the 30s and 40s. You know, she knew... Uh, uh, Noel Coward. She knew the Lunts. She knew this era of actor that, I mean, I only could read about. So I loved all that original energy around me, that, that classic energy around me. Um, but when it comes to, you know, I saw the new Oklahoma and a lot of it disturbed me because people didn't, you know, I loved actually, they, they orchestrated it like a country, you know, fiddle and you know all that and that was adorable I actually really liked that I, I mean I, I love the full lush score but we've seen that so you can see something different but not having people really sing and giving out of my dreams to Aunt Eller and you know certain things that dream ballet I, I had trouble with some of that but that doesn't mean it's not valid it's just that for me who had done I, I remember <laughs> I remember the original cast of Oklahoma coming to see us Oh. And we were true, and we were true to the original. And I think they had a lot of trouble seeing what we were doing because it's like the show. You can't, you know, you can't own the show. I don't own yeah. Oklahoma, but if you feel you own it, like you know, the way you did it was the way, you know, the way it was done with you was the way it should be done. You know, that's not really fair, is it? So I think that if if this piece is strong enough and those classic shows are strong enough to bear being reinterpreted, well, have a go, you know, have a go. And the audience would tell you if it's working or not for them. And that sort of tells you something. So I guess, I mean, it's just the way of theater, you know, the pieces that aren't sound and aren't well-constructed won't bear a revival. I don't think unless they improve them, you know, I mean, that's also something you can do. You can take flawed, like Pimpernel was flawed. It was a lot of fun and it was a great idea, but to me it was flawed in the writing and in the direction uh, in, in, in retrospect, but it was a lot of fun. But that could maybe be reconstructed. You know, it was a nice score. So we'll see. Yeah. So um, while we're on the subject of original people, 
Um, did Richard Rogers himself, was he involved with that Oklahoma at all? No, he was really ailing. He did come by. I think it was during probably a preview. And he came up on stage and blessed us all. But, uh, I mean, he didn't survive much longer. I, I don't know at what point he died. It might have been during the run. We ran a year. Um, but, yeah, so we did have his blessing. You know, he, we had to make sure Mr. Rogers was very strict, judging everything exactly as written. Here and there I was able to take. I learned years later that Billy Hammerstein used to stand in the wings. Uh, at a certain point in the show, whenever he was there, he would stay. He would try to come, I guess, to catch this. And it was the end of Out of My Dreams. And I I was allowed an elision, they call it. And I would sing... Out of my dreams and into the hush of falling shadows. Right there. Falling shadows. Mist is low and stars are breaking through here. Then out of my dreams I'll go into a dream with you. And then the music changes and the girls come on and dance. And he loved that elision, that just holding that note at the end. And I did too. So they allowed some things, but not too many. Yeah. There were rules back then. <laughs> yeah. So you played a lot of uh, romantic leads on stage during this time. And what is it like to find chemistry on stage? And is that ever a challenge? Well, it's curious because, you know, Larry Guitard was quite beautiful. I mean, beautiful to look at, beautiful to listen to. Uh, but I guess our insecurities clashed a little in that particular production, and it, we didn't have the most, but I was also going through an awful lot in my life at that time. My marriage had ended, my first marriage, I was involved in a second relationship, and that was rocky. So, you know, that carries over into your being vulnerable uh, on the stage, although I, I always felt I was pretty good, at least on stage, but we were very different kinds of people. And we didn't really mesh. I think we corrected that over time. I mean, it wasn't mean, mean or anything, but, you know, and I don't think I was bitchy, bitchy because um, we were professional, but it just wasn't chemistry. We didn't have it. And I think he would agree. Uh, it just happened. Uh, and I, at one point when Larry left the show, he left it rather early and Joel Higgins came on and Joel and I had terrific chemistry. We just got along and, and it was much easier. Uh, the relationship, the romance, and all of it. I hope Larry doesn't mind my saying that. I've never said that in public before either. But, you know, in retrospect, I think you can say things. It's just how it is. I don't think it's anybody's fault. It's who you were then and what you were going through. And, you know, I think I think we it worked, you know. But it, maybe it wasn't as fluid and fun as it became when I did it with Joel. Yeah. So as you were becoming a star, did you find that you had more pull sort of creatively that you could make the decisions? Or? You know, it didn't occur to me. I mean, I was pretty happy with what everybody was doing. Yeah, here and there, I would exert my little self. I mean, I, I am egoic, that's for sure. I work on it all the time. And I am willful. So I'm not, you're not always aware when you're, I mean, I don't know if you mean being like kind of bossy, saying I want this and I want that, no. or just, you know. 
Yeah, you mean, I mean, you wanted your name above the title a certain way, yeah. But that was your agent's job, you know. You wanted a really pretty dressing room, but you got that, you know, if you were above the title. So the things that I felt entitled to getting, I got um, uh, just by the way theater is structured. I'm trying to remember if there was anything I really was. Oh, I remember, and, and on your toes, I was bossy. I wanted a, the, the girl was in a blue dress, the original girl, and I wanted a red dress. Because it was a big, my, I first entered this, the stage, my first entrance, I'm part of a big crowd scene, and I wanted a red dress. And he really pissed the costume designer off. But I got a red dress. <laughs> in Oklahoma, I didn't make any demands. I was still finding my way and figuring it out and feeling, you know, I should, I don't, I don't remember making any. Maybe my co-stars would say I did, but I don't remember doing that. Because I was pretty happy show you know yeah. um what was it like to be nominated for a county for this as you were Oof. it was stunning i mean i had no idea i mean i remember reading the review and i got this incredible love letter um in the times walter kerr i had no idea i had no idea i just i thought i was doing well and he went on and on you know rightfully or not i don't know but he went on and on and when I was nominated, I went, yeah, what chance have I got? Patty Lapone just opened in the Vita. Oh. Yeah, you're going to give it to a girl. I mean, the thing about revivals then was they were respected, but they sort of respected, but they were revivals. They weren't new shows. And a new show gets a certain kind of attention that an old show in those days didn't get. Now everybody's, you know, doing backflips over new shows. I mean, just watch what's going to happen with Music Man. And it should happen. I mean, you got Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. It's going to be great. But back then, it was not like, you know, so, I mean, we were liked, but we had a, a heavy bar we had to meet, I think, to be accepted, you know. Yeah. Um, so when I got it, I thought, great, but, and I was very honored, but I thought, no way is this going to happen. And then, of course, the night of the Tony show, I mean, I don't even have a speech because I know it's going to go to Patty. And you're sitting there going, well, it could happen. Oh, my God. And, you know, is there coming to your kid and going, oh, my God, what if it happens? What, what, what if it happens? I have nothing to say. <laughs> And of course, Patty won. And it happened in On Your Toes as well, because when I did that, I know I'm jumping, but Betty Buckley's nominated for Cats and Singing Memories. I mean, what what chance have I got? You know, so that was my luck with the Tonys. But it's still a great honor to be nominated. Don't get me wrong. It's a big honor. So oh, I yes, yes, certainly. So I want to ask you about your next show, which was Alec Wilder's Clues to a Life. Probably, yeah. That was fun. Um, I don't know what really to say about Norman Renee and Craig Lucas, who became a great, great, great playwright um, and was a beautiful singer and, and artist at the time. It was a lot of fun. And Alex's music, I never did sort of soft jazz almost. You know, it's very different. Um, I just remember it being very organic, feeling very comfortable doing it, loving, you know, all the my co-stars in it who were lovely. Um, Jamie, her last name alludes to me. That's terrible, because I haven't thought about it in a long time. But she was beautiful. She had done Miller's Son in Little Night Music. Oh. J no, did, did Jamin Bartlett. Did Jamin Bartlett. She was beautiful. Um, so we had we had a, a really a good time doing it. It was a fun experience. Well, I it's actually, fun remembering I, it. <laughs> yeah. 
I and off-Broadway doesn't quite have the pressure. It doesn't quite have the pressure of Broadway. You know, we had some time to play around and find things that were comfortable. And it was more ensemble, which was fun. Yeah. You know, very much ensemble. We were all kind of equal in it. And that was a lot of fun. And I sang music I never would have sung before. Yeah. It was well done. And do you like doing off-Broadway in general? Sure. It's not very lucrative, but you have more freedom and more time. And it's often, you know... A lot more comfortable to do. Yeah. I mean, you can be a little, the values, I mean, the money is not, for them too, is not the same. So the often the level of production, you, you wish, it, you know, if you're used to Broadway, but it depends on the show. Sometimes they're meant to be small and cozy and sweet. and That's fine. You know, it, it's nice to, to change it all up. Sure. I liked it. So I'm eager to ask you about On Your Toes, which was your yeah. show. So what was it like to be working with George Abbott? Who oh my God, it's sensational. He was, he was first of all, he's, he's beautiful. He was 96 years old, Charles. 96 years old, he's directing this. And he, I guess by then he thought I was difficult because I'd said no. And then I said yes. And I didn't mean it to be difficult. I just meant it like, you know, I mean, I just, I told you why I did it. So, um, but he was such a gentleman. And he was really talking about, he came from that time I was speaking of, you know, the thirties, the forties, you know, he, he, and he was an incredible dancer. He, he took his dancing once, I danced with George, but I think I stepped on his toes. I told you I don't dance. Um, he would give line readings as a director. That's how he directed. Junior, where's, where's, where's your jacket? You know, and he would go, Junior, where's your jacket? And you'd have to go, Junior. Where's your jacket? You know, you have to do it in your, and, and, and a lot of actors are really put off by that. But I didn't mind because he did it. He gave the intention in the way he read it, you know? And so as long as, he didn't mean they had to do exactly like, he just wanted you to have that intention, that energy, you know? So that was a funny way of directing, um, but it worked for me, you know? And he didn't have to do it too often. I just, again, this, that, well, Frankie Frayne was a coat. I put it on, I knew what to do with Frankie. I had pretty good ideas about her from the beginning. And again, I didn't even know what I did. But when I watch little clips of it, I go, damn, that was good. Because <laughs> they have little clips on YouTube, you know, you can watch of it. Maybe watch something there. It's cute. It's sassy. And it was a typical old show. The singers sang, the dancers danced, and the actors acted with their solo songs. You know, there was it was all compartmentalized. It was a very old-fashioned show. And at the same time, Tommy Toon was um, doing his show... Oh, come on, Christine. Jesus, right across the street. And that show, I'll think of it in a minute, that had, you know, they changed it all up and and that got a lot of the press because it was Tommy and they changed it all up. Mr. Abbott kept our show very true unto its form and self. And there was a lot of charm in that. And Lara Teeter was sensational. And McCarville was unbelievable. She won the Tony. I would stand in the wings watching her every night going to school on McCarville because she was so brilliant, you know? Um, and we, we ran a year. That was respectable. Yeah. It should have run longer, though. It was really good. It was really good. And Elton John Malcheri in the pit. And the orchestra. It was, we, had, we, had all the original, we had all the original orchestrations by Hans Bialik. They had been reorchestrated. And this beautiful conductor, John Malcheri, he was classically trained with Bernstein. He was beautiful. And you just watch his face jumping up and down, you know, the music, you know. And the whole pit, you could see the orchestra. All those shows, those first three shows, the guys were in front of you. You know, when I did Oklahoma, I would lie on my belly during, out of my dreams and I'd be at the lip of the stage and I could see the whole pit. 
It was beautiful, that connection. And then on your toes to see all of them playing and see John just bouncing around. You know, now they're in another building. But then the energy, you know, and there was only the foot mics. There was no, nothing here, you know. It was just singing. You had to, you had to, you know, you would be looking at, this is the person you're talking, Junior, really? I don't understand. You'd have to cheat out all the time to hit the back wall, right? Mm -hmm. And there was magic in that because it was live sound bouncing right back at you all the time. You know, bouncing back at you, bouncing back at you. And the audience and the orchestra, it was fantastic. I missed that once we had to get in those big, giant, cavernous theaters and wear these things. But it's the way it went. Yeah. So, so did you enjoy being sort of compartmentalized in the way that you were mentioning? Well, it was just different. So it was fun. You know, it was another style. I hadn't done that. You know, that, that used to be done. It was very sort of, I want to say old-fashioned, but when you do it so faithfully with such charming performers, it's worth bringing that back, letting people see what that was. Yeah. You know, it's worth it. So I thought it was worth it. And, and I got, you know, very good notices. She was striking. They loved her, Makarova. Uh, Lara got some wonderful notices. He should have gotten more, I felt, because he, he worked so hard. Oh, my God. Um, and the dancers were beautiful. And the score is beautiful. And, and the ballets. I mean, it was ballet and tap. I mean, the ballets that uh, they were the Balanchine original choreography redone by Martin. And um, they were gorgeous, you know, to watch. So it was just a new experience. Everything was, you know, I, I like new experiences. That's what we like. Even if they're the old experiences brought back and becoming, you know, new for me. And I'd love to ask about some of the other cast members too, like George S. Irving and Kitty Carlisle. Uh, yes. Oh, my God. I shared a dress about George, of course, that voice he had when he would sing, Quiet night and all around. I mean, his voice is just beautiful. I mean, he was an opera singer at one point. Beautiful voice. You'd melt. And he was such a kind and generous actor. Beautiful man. Uh, and Kitty was a trip. We shared, Dean and I had shared a long dressing room together. It was like a long uh, rectangular dressing room. And uh, when she left, Kitty and I shared the dressing room. When you become very good girlfriends in the dressing room, right? Because she was so classy. She was finished. Her mother had sent her to Europe as a young girl to be finished. And that meant she had learned deportment and etiquette and how to walk and how to talk and how to dance and languages. And she knew it all. And she was really, really bright. She had like almost black eyes that were real dark and they just flashed all the time. She was elderly. I mean, she was probably in her mid-70s when she did this. Or maybe early 70s. I think, and um, sharp as a tech, she was the head of the uh, Council for the Arts, you know, she was always going to Albany. And she and I, she taught me, she taught, She looked at me one day, we'd often have lunch in the dressing room between shows, and she went, darling, you walk like a duck. <laughs> I said, what? She said, well, really, really, you, you do, you, you, can I, can I show you something? And she kind of talked that high way, you know, but it was natural to her, right? And I thought, okay. And so, okay. <laughs> so she taught me and she made me walk back and forth this long dressing room, heel to toe, heel to toe, heel to toe, because that's the way you walk. You send the energy from the heel to your toe. I still don't walk well, but I tried really hard that year to be a better walker. She also made me vocalize before every show, which really, I didn't do that. She would this elegant girl would be in this schmat the bathrobe, which means like an old rag, have her hair in curlers, and we'd have to go down to the basement where the upright piano was doing scales. And she would do her scales faithfully. She was so disciplined. 
So I learned all that from Kitty. She was great, very generous on stage too. So I want to ask you, because I've mentioned you being a Broadway star as you were a couple of times. How do you sort of define this star quality that you have? How? Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I said I was never aware of being particularly special when I was actually in a show. I, I, I'd see. So I didn't think about it much. I, I, I guess there was enough in my performance where I am not egoic, where I don't get in my way, where I allow it to happen. And when you perform like that, then you're authentic, you know? So whatever gift I have, I'm not interrupting it. I'm allowing it to flow. And that's very charismatic. I mean, that's what charisma is. That's what star quality is. When you look at all these performers you love, it's because you sense they're not watching themselves. They are just existing for you, for you. And it's true. It is for you. You know, it's for the audience that you're just, and it's also more fun as an actor. You do all your homework. You know the points you want. You want to hit A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but you don't really know how you're going to get there. And when you, relax and let go and just go from A to B to C to D to E to, you know, when you allow that to unfold, if you're, and particularly, and not every night, but you can get really inspired. Magic can happen. And it's that magic that people love. And I think they also, I mean, I, God gave me a, a really special voice. It's unique. It's different. And people enjoy the sound of my voice as well. So if all that came together on any given night, it could be damn good, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to be bleeped? <laughs> no. So I'd love to know about uh, Brian Bedford's adaptation of Tartuffe. <laughs> oh, goodness. So I was shocked I was hired for that. Yeah, go ahead. Anything particular you want to know? Oh, well, first I want to ask you about him because I know that he was the – he did the adaptation and then he wasn't it was going to be George Grizzard, but then it was him. Yes. Yeah, I think George wasn't real comfortable with the part ultimately. And so they it was mutually agreed and amicably agreed. And maybe Brian always wanted to do it. I don't know, because I would imagine if you worked on it and, and all um are you sure it was his adaptation? I think it was another writer. Check that out. I'm not sure oh. about that. I think it was another guy who did the adaptation. Brian directed it. But I'm not sure. It's so long ago. I don't remember anymore. It was, well, Tartuffe was beautiful, first of all. It was gorgeous production. It was beautiful to look at Kennedy Center. I'd never worked there. And again, I wasn't hired with that much straight acting. So I was kind of amazed Brian hired me, but he liked me. And he did. And I was good, I think, in it. I think I was decent. Uh, because a lot of classic pieces, a lot of singers, a lot of times singers aren't afraid of being a certain size because of the singing, because singing is big. And if you sing honestly and truly, then you're, you know, you're inside uh, the expression. You're not overdoing it. You're delivering it, but you're delivering it fully. And in the a lot of big bravura acting. You can't be afraid of it. So Brian hired me, and I, I don't remember too many issues. I mean, maybe he just had to work on me a little special here and there because I wasn't you know, as adept as the other actors who've been classically trained. But I felt accepted, 
and I had a good time and I had the most beautiful costumes by Jane Greenwood you could imagine oh my god they were pretty I never was dressed like that you know in period style beautiful so that was that was a good experience and I met Fritz Weaver who was adorable um, my, my co-stars were lovely yeah Carol Shelley was beautiful and do you enjoy doing plays too yeah, yeah sure because it's an I mean there's you know in sing in, in musicals the scene goes on so far and then when the emotion is so big that you can't sing about it any uh, talk about it anymore you sing the emotion expands in the singing you know in a play the emotion goes deeper because you're not going into a song you know you're you're going deeper into the scene there's more of that in-depth human uh situation you know the story of, our, of us being human is more fleshed out. Now, we watched the film the other night, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, oh. and August Wilson. And in that writing, it's almost like arias, some of it. It's so beautiful, some of the writing. It is like an aria, you know? It's like a, it's, it's musical. It's beautiful. Good writing is, is uh, it's almost like music. So, But it's so different because you just get to use you. So I haven't had that many opportunities, but they've been... Very rewarding when I've done them, plays. So TV scares me, because oh. <laughs> it's too quick. It's so fast. But we'll get to that, I guess, in a minute. Go ahead. So I want to ask you, unrelated to Tartuffe, if you get offered a show that you don't like the material, will you ever do it, or would you usually turn it down? I usually turn it down, even if I need the gig, even if I need it. Because I, you know, either I don't feel I'm suited or, um, which means I wouldn't be very good in it, or I don't like the writing, you know. I turned, well, I'm not even going to say, I turned George Abbott down. He offered me a play he had written. And I didn't, and you know, he'd written it quite late in life, and, and I didn't feel it scanned well. And I said, no, he also offered me Music Is, which was uh, Shakespeare. An adaptation of a Shakespeare play, Twelfth Night, I think it was. Was it Twelfth Night? I can't remember. And I and I turned it down. And it went to Broadway, and I turned it down. So there's my difficult reputation with Mr. Abbott, right? But and I'm not saying I was right either. Maybe I was wrong. But I didn't feel an affinity. And if I don't feel that affinity to something, I don't trust I'll be good. This is where I just have to rely on my instincts. You know, every actor. You know, it could be a wonderful piece, but you just don't feel it's right for you. So I'm especially curious about the next show you did, which was Rags. So how did you first sort of get involved with this? Well, I was having some very tough times personally. This is when my second relationship was ending. It was very painful and I was pretty, pretty torn apart. And this particular gentleman, I had really left the business for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, and always thinking I would just open a door and walk back in. Well, it doesn't really work like that. So I left for a number of years, and when I came back, it just wasn't the same kind of opportunity as had been available before. But there was this beautiful piece called Rags, and they wanted me to cover the star. I never covered any. Well, actually, I had prior to that, too. But I, so they asked me if I would cover Teresa Stratus, who was opera singer and could be temperamental but was brilliant. And I said yes. And standing by is different than being an understudy. It's a little more glorified than that. You know, you're just, you're not doing any other role. You're just watching what the star does. And, and um, you know, there to keep everybody confident that if anything happened, you could just step in. Well, 
in Boston in previews. Maybe you read about this. Did you read about this? In Boston in previews, Stratus just, she was having trouble with the role uh, interpreting the character. It was, it was like, it was like a female Teviot in Fiddler. You know, it was like a, it was this huge role of a woman's journey. She comes to the United States from Russia and she has to make a life in the twenties. And it was, it was gargantuan and complicated. And they'd gone through several directors. It was probably, the whole piece was problematic. Lots of egos being thrown around. When I got there, the company was fractured. It really was. There were Stratus fans and then there were, you know, creative fans or something. It was just fractured and uh, and wonderful people, but just it was fractured. And, you know, I will have to blame Stratus for that in retrospect because it's the star's job not to let that happen. But I'm sure many people would disagree with me because she had people who really loved her. But as an outsider watching, that's what that's how I diagnosed it. Anyway, so we were in previews and she just goes across the stage one day she, had, she just walked off in the middle of a song and goes baby you're on and she held her throat um, now that earlier that day it was a matinee earlier that day for the first time I had run my songs earlier that day for the first time I had tried on my costumes I had never been on stage with another actor and I had to go on so I did I mean it took a little while they brought the curtain down they explained that Mr. Addis was suffering something or whatever and I was going on and I have to say it was a I've never had an experience like this before or since I thought this was a coat too I understood this role for some reason I, I felt I, I knew what to do with her and I couldn't wait to get on the stage however I had never acted with an actor I'd never sung the song you know with it with the conductor never had my costumes on never been blocked you know it was just what I had watched and I went on feeling very excited and terrified, but excited more than terrified, sang the song and got an ovation. I got a standing ovation finishing the song. And then the show went on and every actor, their eyes were like this. I mean, they just didn't know what to expect and neither did I. And, and I honestly, I, I knew my lines, but I wasn't always sure where to go. And as if by magic, a hand would just appear or a hand would be behind me. Or whenever I really needed to know where to go, they would be guiding me. It was it was mystical, it was magical. It was we were all just in a rarefied space, trying to make a performance come together. We were in the unknown, yeah. and I it was magnificent. <laughs> and I ended up opening the show in Boston and getting the reviews because oh. she wasn't well enough or didn't feel well enough to do it. So that was my experience there. It was a very interesting experience. It wasn't what I call the easiest journey, but it was incredible. Mm -hmm. And I do want to ask you about what it was like to work with all those big sort of theater personalities like Charles Strauss and Stephen Schwartz. And well, I mean, they they didn't really work with me. I mean, they had a show that was in trouble. Yeah. So they had their job to do. You know, and they had a star that they had to get comfortable. So, you know, I remember Rady Harris, who was a famous gossip columnist. This is one of those times when I maybe could have really taken advantage of a situation because they were really deciding whether to go with Stratus or with me. I mean, I don't think they were. One of the money guys was, I think... Charlie Strauss wanted that big voice for his show. And that, I mean, I have a good sized voice, but Stratus is a canon. 
It's gorgeous. And there were big anthems in this. And I could understand that. He wanted that sound for his show, you know. And I was just coming back into it, you know. It wasn't like I was on the high of all the shows I had done. This is business, you know. But this, so this was both business and this was both a, a composer's wish. And I'm married to a composer, so I understand that. So Rady called me, knowing that there was this buzz, you know, between me and Stratus, you know, like a yeah. thing going on, which I was doing my job. Um, and she said, come on, Christine, give me the dirt. Tell me what's going on. And I didn't. I said, Rady, everything's fine. This is just a show out of town. I mean, I could have said, well, and I could have gotten, you know, another person. And maybe I should have because, you know, that's how you, this is this is the business of show where when you, you know, give the stuff and get because you're getting your name in the paper, you know. Yeah, they're talking about me. Yeah, they are. You know, it might have given me more momentum, but that's just not the kind of person I am. I, I just didn't see doing that. It wasn't elegant to me. It wasn't how I had been trained. So. I didn't do it. Uh, Stratus opened this show. It didn't run because of all the issues. But there were elements in that show that were absolutely stunning, for sure. And they've done several revivals since, trying to you know, work it out. Joe Stein became a dear friend, beautiful man, the book writer. And um, you know, I, I got many things out of it, but not stardom back again. <laughs> so I do want to ask you about the sort of change I think there were a few changes in directors out of town. So how did you sort of observe the way that they each were? Oh, yeah. Working. Hmm. I can't really recall. What ended up happening was they brought in Gene Sachs. It was very hard to try to figure this piece out, though, I think. Yeah. Uh, and maybe he wasn't the right guy. I, don't, I can't really judge that. But I don't think Stratus was happy with that. She wanted Zeffirelli. That wasn't going to happen. So the three creatives, well, I should say just really two, Stephen Schwartz and Charlie Strauss took over direction. Now, it's very hard to do all those jobs, directing and writing, you know, changing music or whatever. And so I think that didn't help either. And I mean, I don't, I don't think, you know, I won't go on about it, but, you know, Charlie is a composer and and Stephen is, is a lyricist and... A director is another animal. So I don't know that it improved the show. I really can't recall all the changes they made. And they were trying to please her. And so you have all these major egos involved. And that's when it can get tough. And there wasn't enough time out of town. We didn't have enough time. Just time again. Maybe it all would have evened out. Maybe, you know, they there would have been inspiration with it all. But there was so much emotion. It was hard. It was hard to see clearly. When there's that much angst, it's really hard to know your next step. You know, nothing was clearing. It was all just like this, you know. So I want to ask you about a role that you didn't end up doing on Broadway, which was in Legs Diamond. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So um, this is when I was kind of getting a little more momentum. And I was asked to do this lovely part. And I loved it. I love this show. Peter was gorgeous. Peter Allen, what a beautiful man. And everybody was very excited about this project. Jimmy Niederlander loved Peter's show. That He, he did this one man, you know, extravaganza, extravaganza at Radio City. And he was a showman extraordinary. He was amazing energy. He could do anything. Played the piano like crazy. Tap dance, you know, just 
went back and forth with the audience, sang his tush off. He was, and he was lovely. So that's what Niederlander wanted. However, he strapped a character onto it, a whole show onto it. And not just a character, a mean guy, Legs Diamond. Peter wasn't mean. And Peter wasn't an actor. He was many, many things, but he wasn't an actor and he knew it. And so the show, I was hired to do it. I said yes. And into rehearsals, you know, just, just getting it together, I discovered I was pregnant and I was going to have this baby. So I went to the producer and I said, Marvin Krauss, God bless him. And I said, Marvin, I'm pregnant. I'm going to have this baby. So maybe you're going to have to find yourself another girl. It was a tough choice, but that's the choice I made. And I had great songs in the show. It was a really sweet character. And I got her. It was a coat. Put that one on. I had Alice. I knew who Alice was. It was easy. I had a little New York accent. It was so cute, but I did, I thought. Um, anyway, Marvin said, Christine, we're all pregnant. The show is pregnant. Don't worry about it. You go off, you have your baby. We're going to go and make our adjustments, and we'll see you when it's time. And what was really one? so I went off, and I had my child, and I was living in Canada for a while because my then-husband was Canadian. And I just remember the phone... Uh, at one point, my son stopped breastfeeding. And I got the phone call like three days later. He was 10 months old, and I knew he was okay. And they said, okay, we're going. I said, okay, I'm coming. And I went back to New York and got the most beautiful costumes from Willa Kim and, and wonderful company and Peter being so brilliant. And then we went from the rehearsal room to the stage, and something happened. The show just didn't hold up in, on, on, the, on a Broadway stage. It just had all these holes in it. And Peter's lack of acting ability, which God bless him, but you know, that's another skill. And he was just, he was working as hard as he could, but it, he just wasn't comfortable with it. And it maybe wasn't the right character for him. And whatever Jimmy Niederlander had seen at Radio City, that magic and chemistry and, and charisma, it wasn't happening on the Broadway stage. And so they brought in Harvey Fierstein to doctor the show. And the first thing to go when a show is in trouble is, well, the first thing you do is go faster and funnier. And my character, Alice, was slow and sweet. She was not fast and funny. So there were two other love interests. He kept them, and, he, and I was the first to go. Oh. And it was kind of a mercy killing because a lot of people that were cut from the show. It wasn't my lack of ability. It was simply that they were trying to, have a show. Peter cried. He cried the day that I left because he knew he was losing not just some great me, but he was also losing some great songs, you know. And but he really was sad that I was leaving because we had a lovely rapport. C'est la vie. It's the nature of the business. And then I went on to start a cabaret career because I after that I went. You know, I don't want to be at the mercy of this anymore because this was a new show. This is my second new show, and both of my new show experiences have been difficult very difficult. It's very hard in your show. Um, and I thought, I'm not going to be at the mercy of something, you know, going awry again. I want to take the reins a bit. And I wrote my first show with my then husband, did it at the ballroom, and it was very successful. Very successful. So that became like, whoa, okay, let's do this for a bit. I was singing, I was expressing, it was theatrical to me. So that's how that started. It was birthed out of a couple of disasters, you know. If you want to call them disasters, I actually really didn't. But I didn't like that I was at the mercy that my my whole ability to create could just be, you know, cut off like that. 
so quickly, you know, with having nothing to do with me, really, you know, was the show itself. So I do want to ask you um, one more question, or actually two, about Legs Diamond. Um, what was mm -hmm. your relationship like with the other members of the cast, including Brenda Braxton and Bob? <laughs> it was good. It was really good with everybody. I mean, I was feeling good then. I loved being a mom. I was happy in my life. The relationship I was in ended actually with the birth of my son because I looked at my son and I went, this is love. And I looked at my then husband and I went, this is not love. It had been torturous the whole time. And maybe we were just there to make a boy, make a little boy, you know, I don't know. And that relationship ended. It was still active during legs, but there was an understanding that we were ending and it was mutual. And so I guess, you know, I was just high on mothering and loving it. And, and it was such a new experience. And that joy, um, I think it radiated out of me. And people loved my little Mac, you know, coming to the theater once in a while. And uh, so, yeah, I felt... I felt I had really good relationships with everybody. And also the beautiful Julie Wilson. I mean, my relationship with Julie started there and that relationship continued well past legs. And with Peter too, here and there, but not as much because he was very active still performing, even though he was getting very sick, which we didn't know until later, you know? Um, so that was good. It was good. Legs was a trip. <laughs> and then the last question about that I want to ask you is what was it like to be able to do the reunion of Legs Diamond that you did just a few years ago? It, it was uh, nostalgic, you know. Um, I mean, it's always hard when you do something at the level you do it and then to do it so small. So you have to put that out of your head, you know, you're remembering and who you were then, you know. Uh, I mean, I'm not Alice anymore, you know. So you have to put all that out of your head and just have fun being who you are now, singing those songs. So it was fun. It was fun. It wasn't legs, but it was sweet that it was, you know, brought back to life for that one night. And, um, you know, those people went on with it much further, so they had much more connection with it. Yeah. I had my little connection with it from the beginning, and then I was aborted. So they had, you know, a much longer ride and more feelings about everything. Um, but I just, you know, I left it and went on with my life. Yeah. And that is where I ended part one of my interview with Christine Andreas. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And remember to tune back in next week for part two. Thanks for tuning in.